Hello, salam alaikum and peace upon you all. I'm your co-host of The Architecture Shelf, Nilda, a part one architectural graduate and the voice behind the Architectural Experiment blog, along with Emily, a fantastic level six architectural apprentice, where we share our discussions about architecture and design as we explore what it means to be in the architecture industry as young professionals. We got the chance of a Q&A with Sarah Lebanon, the award-winning principal architect at Lighthouse Architecture and Science, but also behind my first archer job and the author of the book 101 things i didn't learn in architecture school and wish i'd known before my first job our first book in the launch of the architect's shelf we had a great discussion on various aspects of the book from architecture education what is sustainability and advice to those seeking work during these challenging times especially as new graduates it was great to have sarah share her great wisdom and time as a practicing architect in this discussion but where she also shares on her Instagram page, my first Archie job, and on her website, myfirstarchitecturejob.com, where she helps to bridge the gap for graduates and professionals alike all over the world. I hope you enjoy listening to this. To the to the listeners, so welcome to the first sort of um, guest appearance of uh, our first book um, book author Sarah Lebner, and um, so we've decided to do to take on her book. 101 things I didn't learn in architecture school and wish I'd known before. Um, so we decided to pick this book because it's um, it's one of those books that I think all graduates can learn from as we uh, sort of dive into a career uh, that is in architecture. Although it's aimed at initially for Australian architects um, or like the Australian industry um, that is in architecture. Um, we found some very useful uh, takeaways that I think students, graduates and professionals alike can take on and sort of progress and use to, um, I guess, constantly be reminded that you are a constant student, whether you're at any of those stages of your career. So um, so I'm Nilda. I, sort of, I have the page, The Architectural Experiment, where I sort of dive into some of the um, experiences of architecture that I've had and some things I'm learning as I'm sort of progressing into my journey of architecture and so yeah Emily do you want to kind of just share your sort of yeah yeah so um, I'm Emily um, and I'm a, um, a level what's called a level six architectural assistant apprentice at an architecture form firm based in London called um, Alford Hall Monaghan Morris I mean, we also have offices elsewhere but I'm particularly in London um, and I'm currently in my second year of um, my bachelor's at London South Bank University doing architecture. So I'm doing a kind of hybrid thing where I go to university one day a week and then four days a week I'm at practice. So it's quite a it's quite a nice way, um, I guess, of incorporating things that I otherwise wouldn't learn in architecture school, um, which kind of segues into my kind of first kind of question uh, where I was wondering, so at the end of the whole book, I mean, this is the end, but you talk about how you shouldn't really take what you learn at university for granted and that you should actually value, there's a lot of value in it, rightly so. Um, and I was wondering, I mean, the other side of that, if you were to design your own kind of education framework for architecture, what sort of things would you include, uh, whether that be um, topics that you think aren't really taught at university that should be 
taught at university or should it be a hybrid at university work or solely at work like what what do you think that's a really great cross uh, question and i'll start by saying um yeah hello to everyone watching and thank you guys for having me and um this might be an odd thing for those not in australia but i just wanted to say that um I'm based in um, Canberra today, which is Ngunnawal country, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. Not sure if you guys have ever heard that in the UK. Um, that's quite a common thing that we do. Um, so that's a really great question and actually something I have been pondering a lot because um, a lot of people, um, when they first see the book, assume that I've written it um, as a criticism of um university education in Australia, which I haven't necessarily done. Um, I've really since had time to reflect, there's just so much we need to learn to become an architect. It would be impossible to pack all of that into um, five years at university. And that's why pretty much universally around the world, you do your university years and then there's some kind of experience experience requirement that is then tested in Australia. It's tested by exam um, and interview law, similar in the UK. Um, and that's really your second part of your learning um, to get you to be a registered architect. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are really critical of that and saying, well, I didn't learn everything I needed to know to be in the industry, but it's, it's also... Um, I think we need to say, well, hang on, it explicitly says as part of the process that you won't learn everything that you need. There's this other process and it makes more sense to learn a lot of that stuff on the job. Um, you can imagine trying to cover um, the depth, the variation between residential and construction and getting everyone on site enough um, would just be huge. I'm not even sure how you would begin to approach a university course that um, covered everything to, to sort of leave with registration. Having said that, of course, there's things that I would change. And I love you, Frank, as um, what would I do if I was designing my own course? The first thing that jumped to mind is um, there's a pattern in Australia at the moment that subjects are quite um, isolated. And if there's one thing I've learned from practice is that collaboration is, is just really key to unlocking so much knowledge and value. Uh, and I think our generation is particularly collaborative. So I'd like to see more of that at university. Um, you know, they always struggle with you've got design studio and then you've got tech and then you've got sustain sustainability. Um, and there's often this line about how they're all integrated, but they're not at the end of the day. And I think there's a real opportunity there to genuinely get them integrated. Um, as you mentioned, I do say, you know, don't underestimate all the things you learn. It's really common in those first few years when you're doing that more abstract problem solving thinking um, to be sort of churning at the bit to learn more practical and technical things. I know I was. Um, I just I just wanted to know all the practical stuff. Um, but in hindsight, that learning is such a core value of what we need to be excellent architects. Um, 
once you, you know, progress beyond those first few years where you're perhaps just drafting and learning the basics and you get into um, bigger problem solving, because architects are really just expertly trained problem solvers, in my opinion, um, that's where all that abstract thinking really comes into play. And it's, in, it's also necessary for you to have a series of design studios under teachers that all approach things differently. It's inevitable that some you won't really get or get along with, um, but that variation is important so that each person can find and connect with someone who has an approach that, um, that they respect and can apply and can learn from. So um, that's probably it in, in two cents. Um, the, the big thing I've been thinking about actually more than changing the um, university course necessarily is, and obviously what I've been actioning as part of the book and my first architecture job and my membership platform is actually, I think we need more help in those few years after education. So I'm a little bit concerned that um, those sort of critical practical years often happen in isolation with little support where you're only exposed to one firm's way of doing things um, that firm might be outdated on some things and that's where I think there's a real opportunity to have some kind of hybrid learning thing where you can expose yourself to ways other people are doing things in a really efficient way you know you don't have to work at four different firms for three years to see a, a breadth of practice I find that really interesting because um part so going back to what you said about um merging uh, different like schools of thought in um in architecture school and like learning from people in like maybe doing technology or I I really feel like um, I'm really passionate about interdisciplinary ways of thinking. And I feel like um, at Central St. Martin's, they do this quite well because I know, so this, that's a, an art school, an architecture school in, um, in London. Um, they, um, they actively have the architecture students collaborating with people in ceramics, people in fashion. Um, I think they really encourage that collaboration. And I've been doing this um, outside of um, work and school where I've been, for example, I'm uh, last year, I was part of an interdisciplinary team um, called, uh, so it's Reba Refabricate, it was called, it was a waste reuse challenge. And they combined, they put together young archite architects, young um, craftsmen, young um, textile designers, people from all different backgrounds, and they got them together um, to do to uh, solve a problem in a particular material. So my material was textiles, and it was just incredible because I was collaborating with people who've just graduated from uh, the Royal College of Art. Um, I mean, I was actually in my first year. I think everyone thought I was older because everyone else was like, um, you know, had had graduated. But because I had a bit of professional experience, I could join. Um, so I feel like um, that more initiatives like that, where you collaborate with people outside that architecture bubble is super useful. And I think that's the mode of thinking we're going towards. Um, yeah. And I, another thing. So I understand. So, so here in the UK, the pathway is three years of architect of like architecture school. So this yep. is a normal route, university route, one year out in practice and then two years 
uh, doing your master's and then another year in practice and then my yeah. route's like four years in uh, doing degree high work hybrid uh, plus um three years and a bit uh so that's the kind of difference between the two in australia am i correct in thinking it's five years and then you do your work yeah yeah um i'll i can clarify that i'm just going to switch to my other internet so if you lose me that's what's happened but automatically i should have a better um yeah, it worked. Um, so uh, firstly, to briefly touch on your collaboration comment, um, absolutely, I've really changed my thinking about that over the years. I used to want to strive to know it all, but now I want to strive to be connected to the networks that allow me to access it all. Um, and it's a much more efficient and productive way of learning. In our firm, um, we're multidisciplinary with building scientists. Um, and, you know, when I first started, I thought that maybe that would mean I would lose that knowledge, but it's the complete opposite. You, you know so much about it without doing that work yourself. Um, and we truly do collaborate so I think that's a really good point. Um, yeah, in Australia, I mean, I think it probably ends up similar to yours in the end, but it's a, a three-year bachelor degree. Um, in some universities, I think you have to do work experience in your year out. The one I did, you don't have to. Um, you can go straight through and do the master's. Um, and then it's at least two years working Um Afterwards, you have to do a logbook and hit all of these different criteria. So some people take a bit longer um, to meet all of the experience. Uh, and I understand, I think, one of the differences between the UK and Australia from what I've heard, although, Emily, what you're doing sounds really interesting, is that not many students work during what well, their studies in the UK is what I had heard, whereas the majority of students in Australia during good economic times um, are probably working during their masters. So they're still getting that hybrid approach to learning. By by working, do you mean working in practice or working a normal yeah, job? Part yeah, part-time. Um, yeah, part-time, yes. Um, so there are, for example, within my own apprenticeship cohort, so at the university I go to, um, I attend uh, classes with other apprentices from different practices, so like big and small, which is really nice. Um, yeah. And I think there are a few doing part time. Um, and I, I mean, there's even a variation within the apprenticeship itself, like other universities do rather than one day a week, they do week long intensives at the university, right. um, like once a term. So there are various modes of even doing the, the apprenticeship itself. Um, yeah yeah so there is this year of year in practice but it's not compulsory you can just go straight to masters right yeah 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 um that's what you can do here um I guess you you could kind of do a do-it-yourself version of what you're doing here so I have had friends who have say worked since second or third year um and have just spread out their studies um, I did that in my master's, so you can sort of spread your work, workload over three trimesters rather than two semesters. Um, so I worked three days a week and studied and still got my master's done in two years. 
I uh, n- now I remember. I think someone at my own practice is doing something similar to that—a kind of do-it-yourself version. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I love that there's a more facilitated version. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think um, so. In the UK at the moment, um, there's there are more universities doing level seven, so that's the masters rather than level six, which is the bachelors. So. Currently, at the moment, it's only London South Bank University in London and Portsmouth, which is uh, just uh, south south of that. Um, so not too many. So like there are a few apprentices within my own practice, sorry, within the cohort at university who come from like really far away from like Durham, from um, like Suffolk or Bristol. So they, they can't, they actually have to commute properly in to, to be there on those days um so that's the that's this the side of things i think needs to improve because i feel like the practice appetite is there we just need more universities to be on board and it's slowly growing um yeah yeah that's a really fascinating model um i'll have to think about that one and yeah 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 i mean just, the, just um, the ha- oh sorry go on yeah I was going to say to scale, I think it was to scale blog did a great um, post recently. They sort of graphed all of the pathways to registration, depending on all the countries around the world. Um, yeah. That was really interesting and a really easy graphical way to see it. Yeah. Um, I was, I was just going to touch upon, like I, I understand through the, so the traditional of just studying first rather than sort of the hybrid, you you can still do sort of part-time, but I think some students, because they want the, the full, I guess, the, the uni experience, that sometimes they do sort of do it on their own, but I think it's, it's they come out very tired, <laughs> very sort of, it's a very packed, because I feel like the course itself, five days a week, more or less, is quite intense. Um, and so I, I do know some people who ended up actually just to kind of support themselves because there was no other way, especially when you go into university that's sort of in the city, um, it is very sort of full on. But there is sort of, you, you mentioned sort of the, the year out, whether or not sort of we have to work. I think there is that, that option. It's more like it's frowned, not frowned upon, but I guess it's encouraged a lot by um, sort of, the master's sort of courses to go into um, a practice and work for at least a year because that's sort of you need to qualify you would need 24 months um, overall to be able to kind of uh, progress throughout the the different sort of accreditations so it's encouraged that you would do something outside of sort of the degree prior to sort of doing a master's just I guess to I personally feel like I so so on the job hunt for myself personally it has been a bit difficult with sort of like the COVID situation so having to kind of play play with my cards and what, what I do have and so um so it, I think it, it just encourages you to kind of put your design skills elsewhere and kind of really you know assess your own experience of architecture because you're kind of in the beginning you're sort of learning the tools of the trade, I guess. And then you kind of mature in your own sort of understanding of what kind of architecture you want to do or what architecture you don't want to do, um, but, which is sort of where we kind of dived into 
we were very passionate about sort of sustainability because it was one of those things that it's like I personally shy away from talking because I don't know enough and I feel like there's so much to talk about that um as a graduate where do I kind of put my foot and say do I work for a practice that will teach me what it means to be a sustainable architect or to to do sustainable architecture or do I have to do the educating and being, you know, on, on the other side where I have to sort of really get myself involved and educate myself in order to educate a practice. And so we were kind of in this sort of debate as to how, how would sort of someone who's starting out in their career and who has an interest, because we were really interested to hear that you, uh, the practice that you sort of you work in, you have this interdisciplinary or this multidisciplinary approach, which is sort of very different from it, like the practices, sort of like the big practices that we kind of hear that I guess you don't hear it sort of talked about as much. And I think we're really interested in sort of having that involvement of sort of multi, um, like a multifaceted experience of architecture. But at the beginning, how can you essentially get involved and really educate yourself and get, you know, get the education that you need in order to make an informed understanding of what it is. So I know this yeah, is sort of a, really, it's a, a big... It's a, it's a great question. Um, and, yeah, obviously an area I'm very um, passionate and fairly informed about. Um, I, you know, in an ideal world, a sustainable architecture wouldn't be this separate thing, right? It would just be good architecture is sustainable, but that's definitely not the reality around the world. And my experience is that sustainability is still quite poorly integrated into university studies. And that is definitely one thing that um, should be far better taught in my experience. Um, there used to be quite a good subject that I tutored um, here at my university that did just focus on environmental sustainable design, um, but it's now been um, integrated into design studio, I think, um, which essentially means a lot of it's um, disappeared. One of the best exercises one of the years that we ran that course to introduce students to sustainability, and it's something that you can do yourself, is to study all of the different rating systems, both voluntary and compulsory. Just wrapping your head around them gives a really broad overview of all the different facets of environmentally sustainable design. Um, so, uh, yeah, I know, and, and obviously there's differences between residential and, and construction. So anyone who's looking for a starting point, I would say start by looking at them. Um, the, you know, there's everything from um, living building challenge is probably the most stringent. I think it's come out of America and it's good in terms of thinking about really holistic. So it covers everything from um, embodied energy to um, whether a project is beautiful, because what's the point in doing things if they're not going to be beautiful and stay around and be valued? Um, and then you've got, um, so the sphere we work in, um, we work more with um, energy efficiency as the focus um, in terms of the science and evidence that we used. And then we bring that holistic thinking into it in terms of things like building smaller homes or flexible homes or um, embodied energy. So in Australia, we have a um, 
mostly nationally adopted system called NatHERS, and it uses climate data from the last 30 years from our Bureau of Meteorology across 69 climate zones. So the biggest challenge in Australia is we're fairly big and we have a lot of very different climates um, from, you know, where it snows half of winter to very tropical. So it, it models, simulates a house um, depending on its location and orientation um, based on that data from the last 30 years. So we're able to use that and plenty of other firms will use that um, as well. So there's all these consultants that do it. Unfortunately, a lot of the housing industry uses it as a checkbox at the end of a project just to get their minimum star rating. Um, whereas we're really using it to inform and drive how we approach things. Um, and then the science team are also focusing on other things like um, condensation and uh, other big things. Um, another one that comes up a lot at the moment is passive house. So um, as opposed to solar passive, um, I'm sure it's got a big holding in the UK. Um, it's gaining some grip in Australia. Um, it's a similar approach to what we use, um, but, but our evidence and data shows us that um, in our climate, we can achieve really um, essentially the same results in terms of comfort level and energy use of a house um, without going to the level of um, very extreme air tightness um, that passive house requires and sort of the a few of the unconventional and more expensive construction takes, techniques. Um, however, I suspect that in many parts of Europe, um, it actually makes really great sense um, and is probably more in line with how the standard construction industry is already working. You know, I see these details. I follow Building Science Fight Club from America um, and see the way they build in America, um, particularly North America, and it just makes us look like we're building tents over here in Australia. Um, so that can be another tricky thing. You know, where do you get your information from? So start with the rating systems. Um, and then... Uh, and then I would say, look for evidence. So one of my real pet hates is that a lot of the sustainability industry um, is based on theory and you don't see a lot of follow-up publication of actual performance and actual cost. It is hard to publish cost of projects because obviously that can be sort of very confidential information. Um, but, you know, there there's a, a magazine in Australia called Sanctuary that does little profiles on projects and at the end it always says sort of, um, what was included and how they approached it and what the project cost was. So you can, um, yeah, follow evidence. There's no excuse these days not to have the evidence on that, that kind of thing. And that's where you can be a bit critical. So it's another point that I make in the book. Um, you really do as a young architect need to be critical as you are learning sustainability. Um, I've certainly changed my tact over the years in which sort of things I've been prioritizing or which school of thought I've been following. Um, so, you know, by all means learn about one of them and get a bit obsessed with that, but keep an open mind because something might come along. You might realize something's um, actually better and really remember as a young architect that we're the generation leading this and a lot of older architects are actually very poorly educated on this. Um, 
So take everything you're told with a grain of salt. Seek that evidence that backs it up. That was a very long-winded answer. <laughs> no, that, was, that was really good because I'm, I'm looking into this, like literally like right now. Like yesterday, I was um, looking at the um, Living Building Challenge um, so like only recently I've discovered that it's a thing just from because um, I was listening to a talk by um, uh, Michael P Paulin, uh, who did the Eden Project and um, it's in charge of exploration architecture. Mm -hmm. um, and he brought up this um, living building challenge and I was like, well, I have to learn more about this. Um, so they have quite a few resources on their site, which is super useful. And they've got a few courses on there, although they are paid quite they're paid courses so i think think like the minimum is like 60 dollars and then upwards of like hundreds right. of dollars okay um, so that's to be to get the 20 credits to be like accredited as someone who knows about the living yeah. built this is from yeah. by the living institute as I, yes as i understand it um so i did i did get the zero carbon one um which was like yeah like 60 50 dollars around there um, and that, I found that super useful, but that I have the privilege of being an apprentice and I'm being paid and I'm not, not in debt. So that's, that's from my end of things. And I know that the vast yeah. majority of people with the apprenticeship being so new are doing the degree route. So yeah. I was wondering if you knew of any, um, free resources, um, to learn about these legislations. So I know on the, on the websites, it's often, they've got a bunch of information um but i was wondering if you knew of any particular cool free free things that you, you knew <laughs> yeah i i don't um and I, my goal this year is to make one myself actually it Ooh. won't be free but hopefully an affordable way to yeah. learn about um sustainability um so please follow me and <laughs> yeah um and in our membership um, platform, which is is primarily for Australian um, students, um, but again, if you got something out of the book, you'd probably get something out of the membership. Um, we do dive into it a little bit, um, depending on the different topics of the quarters. Um, there are so many wonderful free places to learn. Um, like I mentioned um, over here, we have a, a really great, I think they're non-for-profit organisation called Renew and they publish a, a magazine called Sanctuary um, that actually has really good information and articles on it. Um, so, you know, generally I think um, probably as a student subscribing to um, sustainable focused magazines and that can be a good way to weed through all of the noise on the internet because it's there's a lot of inaccurate um and distracting things on the internet um i'm sure there's some wonderful youtube channels about it um i'm really aware that there's this whole world of wonderful information on youtube that i don't currently engage with um, I think as you as you mentioned, you know, going on the website for each of the platforms, they should have reasonable information available freely to promote what they're doing. Um, livable housing is certainly a, a I think that's a good one to start with because of how broad and how um, sort of deep they dive into everything. Um, passive house is probably so the the, the passive house standard, not solar passive. Um, 
passive house is probably good in starting to think of things from that scientific um, point of view. And, you know, my only warning there is to just think about what, what level you're taking that to, depending on your climate. Um, and I, I should say, you know, different firms have different focuses. So our firm's focus is very much trying to create um, solutions in that more affordable mainstream market. Um, the reason we would never do a, a, a livable how I'm not sure what they're called when they're qualified, the livable one um, is because it, it is really next level. You know, you're looking at a bigger budget and a really motivated client um, to get to go into that one. And I'd love to do one one day, but it's just not where we're operating. Um, and then the commercial ones are also interesting to look at as well. So we've got Green Star, which is really big in Australia. And I think it's similar to your lead programs. Um, and they're interesting because they start to look at things like um, off-gassing and VOCs and commercial materials. And um, so I'm sorry, I don't have a good answer on the um, simple courses to do other than just try and find credible resources. Um, and perhaps that's another good point. When you're starting out, um, don't get all your information from one approach or source. So if you can find a good credible um, magazine or journal um, that's delivering you a range of things, it will help you have more robust knowledge um, because there's not one solution to um, everything we know as architects. And I think in today's age, we... Um, we always want to know what's the right way and what's the best way. And there's, there's simply not an answer to that. Um, everyone and every rating system that's working in the sustainability space is doing something brilliant um, and they've all got something to offer um, and you can sort of cherry pick them for your knowledge um, and then apply them to whatever situation you're working in. Yeah. I mean, Brilliant. I think, yeah, that's so much more than what we. <laughs> yeah, that was really, really good. Um, and same for those terms, Emily, you, you mentioned before we started recording, you know, how do you start learning all the words and things? Just read and get to know projects and you'll pick it up. It's the same as um, planning terms. Oh, my God, it's just I'm still learning them all in Australia um, and in Canberra where I am, which is the capital, which has its own um, different legal framework. It's just death by acronyms. Um, yeah. and they change all the acronyms every time government changes. So, you know, that's life. Um, just learn and don't be afraid to ask, um, please as students and graduates, just ask if you don't know something, as I say in the book, um, you'll either get an answer or the other person's not worth your time. Cause who wouldn't want to help, you know, a student or graduate who's thirsty to learn. Yeah, like constantly, um, like in because I have like daily catch ups at my work, and you know whenever there's like an acronym that I, I have no idea what it is, I look it up, and then if I, it, it, what that's really that's the really useful thing of these online meetings as well, because when you're in a meeting, you can't exactly take out your phone and look up, like you can't, it, it's a bit rude. You, you can't take out your yeah. phone, so yeah. here you can just be like sneaky like okay yeah oh, okay that's the, that's the thing that. okay awesome i get it like it's <laughs> and it's remembering really people's amazing. names <laughs> yeah i'm not very good at names and i've really loved that on zoom everyone's got a little name tag <laughs> yeah uh, <sighs> but yeah it's so true and then you get experienced you know i'm at the point where um 
I've forgotten what half the acronyms stand for. I know what they mean, but I, I can't actually tell you what they stand for anymore. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, the main thing is the meaning, isn't it? So yeah. <laughs> that's the main thing to get. Yeah. That's right. <sighs> World of acronyms. Yeah. yeah, like within them. Um, so when you were talking about earlier about um, having these special, you, you have scientists within your practice. Um, so within our practice, we have a sustainability team, um, which is super useful to have in-house. Um, like I approach them all the time asking um, uh, for, for information um, like to, be to better myself and to, because um, uh, right now I'm doing a materials report for the project I'm working on. So I'm trying to find more sustainable, innovative um, materials to use in the facade. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's been a real um, amazing journey to go on. Um, it's really exciting to see all these innovations. Um, annoying when they're like just at like research and development stage and they're not quite at the like mass production stage or, or you yeah. know, using it on real uh, building, like large scale buildings. But it's, all, it's always exciting to see that this is um, going on. Um, yeah, so... I just, I just love this interdisciplinary nature of things and like being able to have everything in house. Um, how, how does that like discussion work with the scientists? So do they, cause I, I can see this rise of like researching in house in general. So for example, um, DR, DRMM architects um, in, in London, uh, they, they um, encourage people to do their own research and um, Hawkins Brown, they, um, they, allow people to have time off, off for a period. I think it's a few months um, to do like a research thing. I know someone did research on light, for example. I feel like that's a real cool thing to see. Um, how does it work in your practice? How does this collaboration work? Yeah, there's probably two, two layers there and something I'm really fascinated about because um, our firm doesn't really have the model of sort of the one old expert um, that knows everything that you can refer to. Um, it, it's a, a story for another day, but um, I ended up in the, the principal architect position um, probably earlier than I was ready. And then I had two fellow recently registered colleagues um, and we were forced to together, um, together we had enough knowledge to get by. Um, and it really forced a collaborative knowledge um, spirit in our firm and one of the things I'm really interested in is um yes we sort of encourage um people you know to do different research or CPD um and we're moving towards we're thinking about implementing so that every person in the firm has their topic that they are sort of the firm expert on. Um, so if you want to know about that thing, you go talk to them. They update the notes for that thing. Um, if you learn something about that thing, you update them um, so that it is a, we call it a hive approach of knowledge um, because that I find that a tricky thing in firms. You know, you don't really want everyone to be reinventing the wheel. Um, so we try to have a system of if you go away and do CPD, um, 
continuing professional development, um, that you then come back and you have a little lunch and update the team. We also try to do one lunch a month with either another architect or a consultant or a trade um, just to, to pick their brains on things. Um, in terms of the science and how that works, and we do have this sort of other arm, they also do services um, advising people on retrofitting their homes as well, um, which really helps us with understanding real true bang for buck. So, um, you know, again, we're not in that space of necessarily trying um, the latest materials that are a bit more expensive. Um, we do occasionally when my boss did her own house, we, you know, we tried, um, tested some phase change materials and things, but, um, what we really come back to is that through using, um, that science modeling and getting good at understanding that, um, and it's a solar passive approach, um, again, with, with sort of um, milder versions of, of, of passive house, so um, air leakage and insulation, and then using the Australian Nathos system to help us learn and optimise and test things. But um, our focus really comes back to achieving great results using standard construction materials um, because we're prioritising um, influencing and offering services to the, the broader mass market. Um, so it's very, it's a really interesting thing because you, you know, you've got to have architects operating in this space where they're pushing boundaries and doing really top-notch things and trying new materials and making those new materials more affordable and mainstream. Um, but, but worse, I guess, actively not in that space. Um, we're trying to show that um, you don't have to use all these unconventional things and added on technology um, that you can stick to conventional materials and construction methods and just apply them really well, um, which is what architects do. You know, it's our knowledge and problem solving and design considerations. Um, and there's a really nice um, balance between science and architecture in our firm. It's not that science wins, it's just about being informed. So um, say for example, clients have a, had a, a, a large west facing view um, so obviously in summer in Australia that's going to be problematic um, with overheating um, but but we can model the different window sizes so we can say yeah look this window is a bit bigger a bit more view um, but it's going to hurt your energy rating this much and that'll roughly equate to you know electricity use or feeling you know, like this. So clients can make an informed decision. We don't, um, we don't, we don't force them. It's just that we've got that um, process to help us answer questions like that. Another really big one is flooring. Um, so we use uh, exposed concrete slab because it's a very cost-effective way to get our thermal mass into our projects in um, Canberra in particular. Canberra is very cold in winter, but has very sunny, crisp, um, days in winter so it's it's just the perfect place for solar passive design um so you know if clients then go put a, a carpet or timber flooring over that it affects that and we can tell them exactly what the effect is so yeah it's sort of um yeah using the science as a as a 
tool, I think, rather than being um, delivered, um, rather than being dictated to by the science. Wow, that, that's brilliant. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited going back to how um, with these develop, development no notebooks, how each person in your practice is a kind of specialist in a particular thing. Uh, so yeah, we, we haven't become... instigated it yet, but we're mo moving. Oh, okay, <laughs> we're moving. That, that's that's yeah. so exciting. That's brilliant. Tends to be where we're going. Yeah, yeah. Like they're walking, develop. They're walking notebooks of yeah, like particular that's right. things. That's amazing. Like, yeah, uh, it spreads yeah. the load as well because um, it's just impossible to um, to be that resource that knows everything and trying to keep everyone up to date. It's, it really stresses me out as someone leading a team um, to feel that responsibility. So yeah, it's a good approach. Yeah. I, I mean, that, I mean, that's just, uh, that, that sign particularly excites me. And also the fact that um, you, you, you explain things in like kind of what's layman's terms, but like for, for clients in like, in ways that so I, I guess there's also that thing in sustainability where um yes you can insulate a home and yes but then there's also the idea of like you know you can just put on a jump jumper i guess or uh, the, the, i mean it's also i guess um changing people's mindsets and ways of living in the first place and i think yes. that's quite yeah an interesting side of things as yeah. well yeah, absolutely. We're really big on, so one of our taglines is smaller, smarter homes. Um, so the, you know, the number one thing you can do before you even think about any of the sustainability is just build less house. So um, a recent ComSec report from last year um, said that we're back to building the biggest new homes in the world in Australia. We said we tend to battle it out with America, but I think we were back on top last year and Canberra, the city I live in has the biggest new houses in Australia. So here in my home city, we are building the biggest new homes in the world. And then to turn around and talk about housing affordability issues and construction quality issues and sustainability issues um, just seems ridiculously spoilt to me. So there's a lot of um, psychology in it um, and you know, I don't, I think it's easy to sit around and whinge and say, oh, it's the public's fault, but we have a role as architects to um, turn up and join that discussion and to help people understand. So, um, you know, people don't know what they haven't seen. So a lot of people haven't been in a home that's well-designed and is smaller. So we try really hard to um, open up our homes a lot and to, you know, um, uh, participate in publications and um, public workshops and things like that. So um, I've forgotten where we started talking about this, but <laughs> oh, so yeah, sustainability builds smaller. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And that's where the connection between um, uh, the architecture and science and that holistic thinking works really well. So, yeah, we do. We challenge people on their briefs. Um, you know, a lot of people come to us with a spare room in their brief that's just a dedicated room for guests. 
um, and most of them will end up combining that with their second living space. So we say to them, look, we can design this in a way in a location that it will function well um, as both. Um, it'll close off easily. Um, and most people are really, really happy with that. And they're not spending all this money building a spare room. And I often make the point that, you know, that might be over the, li the life cycle of your loan, you might be paying $40,000 in Australia to have that spare room. And um, that's an awful lot of nights at a nice hotel <laughs> for your um, family that are visiting. Yeah. I mean, that's such, you got into such a depth. <laughs>